Section 17 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 The Opium War, Part 1. The opium dispute with China was going on when the Queen came to the throne. The Opium War broke out soon after. On March 3, 1843, five huge wagons each of them drawn by four horses and the whole under escort of a detachment of the sixtieth regiment arrived in front of the mint an immense crowd followed the wagons it was seen that they were filled with boxes and one of the boxes having been somewhat broken in its journey the crowd were able to see that it was crammed full of odd-looking silver coins the lookers-on were delighted as well as amused by the sight of this huge consignment of treasure, and when it became known that the silver money was the first installment of the China ransom, there were lusty cheers given as the wagons passed through the gates of the mint. This was a payment on account of the war indemnity imposed on China. Nearly four millions and a half sterling was the sum of the indemnity, in addition to one million and a quarter which had already been paid by the Chinese authorities many readers may remember that for some time china money was regularly set down as an item in the revenues of each year with which the chancellor of the exchequer had to deal the china war of which this money was the spoil was not perhaps an event of which the nation was entitled to be very proud it was the precursor of other wars the policy on which it was conducted has never since ceased altogether to be a question of more or less excited controversy but it may safely be asserted that if the same events were to occur in our day it would be hardly possible to find a ministry to originate a war for which at the same time it must be owned that the vast majority of the people of all politics and classes were only too ready then to find excuse and even justification the wagon loads of silver conveyed into the mint amid the cheers of the crowd were the spoils of the famous opium war reduced to plain words the principle for which we fought in the china war was the right of great britain to force a peculiar trade upon a foreign people in spite of the protestations of the government and all such public opinion as there was of the nation of course this was not the avowed motive of the war not often in history is the real and inspiring motive of a war proclaimed in so many words by those who carry it on not often indeed is it seen naked and avowed even to the minds of its promoters themselves as the quarrel between this country and china went on a great many minor and incidental subjects of dispute arose which for the moment put the one main and original question out of people's minds and in the course of these discussions it happened more than once that the chinese authorities took some steps which put them decidedly in the wrong thus it is true enough that there were particular passages of the controversy when the english government had all or nearly all of the right on their side so far as the immediate incident of the dispute was concerned and when if that had been the whole matter of quarrel or if the quarrel had begun there a patriotic minister might have been justified in thinking that the chinese were determined to offend england and deserved humiliation 
but no consideration of this kind can now hide from our eyes the fact that in the beginning and the very origin of the quarrel we were distinctly in the wrong we asserted or at least acted on the assertion of a claim so unreasonable and even monstrous that it never could have been made upon any nation strong enough to render its assertion a matter of serious responsibility the most important lessons a nation can learn from its own history are found in the exposure of its own errors historians have sometimes done more evil than court flatterers when they have gone about to glorify the errors of their own people and to make wrong appear right because an english government talked the public opinion of the time into a confusion of principles the whole principle of chinese civilization at the time when the opium war broke out was based on conditions which to any modern nation must seem erroneous and unreasonable the chinese governments and people desired to have no political relations or dealings whatever with any other state they were not so obstinately set against private and commercial dealings but they would have no political intercourse with foreigners and they would not even recognize the existence of foreign peoples as states they were perfectly satisfied with themselves and their own systems they were convinced that their own systems were not only wise but absolutely perfect it is superfluous to say that this was in itself evidence of ignorance and self-conceit a belief in the perfection of their own systems could only exist among a people who knew nothing of any other systems but absurd as the idea must appear to us yet the chinese might have found a good deal to say for it it was the result of a civilization so ancient that the oldest events preserved in european history were but as yesterday in the comparison whatever its errors and defects it was distinctly a civilization it was a system with a literature and laws and institutions of its own it was a coherent and harmonious social and political system which had on the whole worked tolerably well it was not very unlike in its principles the kind of civilization which at one time it was the whim of men of genius like rousseau and diderot to idealize and admire the european of whatever nation may be said to like change and to believe in its necessity his instincts and his convictions alike tend this way the sleepiest of europeans the neapolitan who lies with his feet in the water on the chiaja the spaniard who smokes his cigar and sips his coffee as if life had no active business whatever the flaneur of the paris boulevards the beggar who lounged from cabin to cabin in ireland a generation ago all these no matter how little inclined for change themselves would be delighted to hear of travel and enterprise and of new things and new discoveries but to the chinese of all eastern races the very idea of travel and change were something repulsive and odious as the thought of having to go a day unwashed would be to the educated englishman of our age or as the edge of a precipice is to a nervous man so was the idea of innovation to the chinese of that time the ordinary oriental dreads and detests change but the chinese at that time went so far beyond the ordinary oriental as the latter goes beyond an average englishman in the present day a considerable alteration has taken place in this respect the chinese have had innovation after innovation forced on them 
until at last they have taken up with the new order of things, like people who feel that it is idle to resist their fate any longer. The emigration from China has been as remarkable as that from Ireland or Germany, and the United States finds itself confronted with a question of the first magnitude when it asks itself what is to be the influence and operation of the descent of the Chinese population along the Pacific slope. Japan has put on modern and European civilization like a garment. Japan effected in a few years a revolution in the political constitution and the social habits of her people, and in their very way of looking at things, the like of which no other state ever accomplished in a century. But nothing of all this was thought of at the time of the China War. The one thing which China asked of European civilization and the thing called modern progress was to be let alone. China's prayer to Europe was that of Diogenes to Alexander, stand out of my sunshine. It was, as we have said, to political relationships rather than to private and commercial dealings with foreign peoples that the Chinese felt an unconquerable objection. They did not indeed like even private and commercial dealings with foreigners. They would much rather have lived without ever seeing the face of a foreigner. But they had to put up with the private intrusion of foreigners in trade, and had had dealings with American traders and with the East India Company. The charter and the exclusive rights of the East India Company expired in April 1834. The charter was renewed under different conditions, and the trade with China was thrown open. One of the great branches of the East India Company's business with China was the opium trade. When the trading privileges ceased, this traffic was taken up briskly by private merchants, who bought of the company the opium which they grew in India and sold it to the Chinese. The Chinese governments and all teachers, moralists, and persons of education in China had long desired to get rid of or put down this trade in opium. They considered it highly detrimental to the morals, the health, and the prosperity of the people. Of late, the destructive effects of opium have often been disputed, particularly in the House of Commons. It has been said that it is not on the average nearly so unwholesome as the Chinese government always thought, in that it does not do as much proportionate harm to China as the use of brandy, whiskey, and gin does to England. It seems to this writer hardly possible to doubt that the use of opium is, on the whole, a curse to any nation, but even if this were not so, the question between England and the Chinese governments would remain just the same. The Chinese governments may have taken exaggerated views of the evils of the opium trade. Their motives in wishing to put it down may have been mixed with considerations of interest as much political as philanthropic. Lord Palmerston insisted that the Chinese government were not sincere in their professed objection on moral grounds to the traffic. If they were sincere, he said, why did they not prevent the growth of the poppy in China? It was, he tersely put it, an exportation of bullion question, an agricultural protection question. It was a question of the poppy interest in China and of the economists who wished to prevent the exportation of the precious metals. It is curious that such arguments as this 
could have weighed with any one for a moment it was no business of ours to ask ourselves whether the chinese government were perfectly sincere in their professions of a lofty morality or whether they unlike all other governments that have ever been known were influenced by one sole motive in the making of the regulations all that had nothing to do with the question states are not at liberty to help the subjects of other states to break the laws of their own governments especially when these laws even profess to concern questions of morals is it the duty of foreign states not to interfere with the regulations which a government considers it necessary to impose for the protection of its people all traffic in opium was strictly forbidden by the governments and laws of china yet our english traders carried on a brisk and profitable trade in the forbidden article nor was this merely an ordinary smuggling or a business akin to that of the blockade running during the american civil war the arrangements with the chinese government allowed the existence of all establishments and machinery for carrying on a general trade at canton and macao and under cover of these arrangements the opium traders set up their regular headquarters in these towns let us find an illustration intelligible to readers of the present day to show how unjustifiable was this practice the state of maine as every one knows prohibits the common sale of spirituous liquors let us suppose that several companies of english merchants were formed in portland and augusta and the other towns of maine for the purpose of brewing beer and distilling whiskey and selling both to the public of maine in defiance of the state laws let us further suppose that when the authorities of maine proceeded to put the state laws in force against these intruders our government here took up the cause of the whiskey sellers and sent an iron-clad fleet to portland to compel the people of maine to put up with them it seems impossible to think of any english government taking such a course as this or of the english public enduring it for one moment in the case of such a nation as the united states nothing of the kind would be possible the serious responsibilities of any such undertaking would make even the most thoughtless minister pause and would give the public in general some time to think the matter over and before any freak of the kind could be attempted the conscience of the nation would be aroused and the unjust policy would have to be abandoned but in dealing with china the ministry never seems to have thought the right or wrong of the question a matter worthy of any consideration the controversy was entered upon with as light a heart as a modern war of still graver moment the people in general knew nothing about the matter until it had gone so far that the original point of dispute was almost out of sight and it seemed as if the safety of english subjects and the honour of england was compromised in some way by the high-handed proceedings of the chinese government the english government appointed superintendents to manage our commercial dealings with china unluckily these superintendents were invested with a sort of political or diplomatic character and thus from the first became objectionable to the chinese authorities one of the first of these superintendents acted in disregard of the express instructions of his own government he was told that he must not pass the entrance of the canton river in a vessel of war as the chinese authorities always made a marked distinction between ships of war and merchant vessels in regard to the freedom of intercourse misunderstandings occurred at every step of negotiation these misunderstandings were natural 
our people knew hardly anything about the Chinese. The limitation of our means of communication with them made this ignorance inevitable, but certainly did not excuse our acting as if we were in possession of the fullest and most accurate information. The manner in which some of our official instructors went on was well illustrated by a sentence in the speech of Sir James Graham during the debate on the whole subject in the House of Commons in April 1840. It was, Sir James Graham said, as if a foreigner who was occasionally permitted to anchor at the Nore and at times to land at Wapping, being placed in close confinement during his continuance there, were to pronounce a deliberate opinion upon the resources, the genius, and the character of the British Empire. End of section 17